Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. Looking good, looking scrumptious, in the in my room with me, in no jeans, you look good, and invited. Do you not know the words because you're singing? Listen, I know the sounds, and that's what matters. <laughs> I'm judging. Um, I know all the sounds to all the words I don't know. So on that like, note, <laughs> that is Xavier Ramey, y'all are here. <laughs> what informs you, justice or shenaniganery? CEO of Justice Informed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh, people be thinking I'm the most serious person in the world. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm really not. I really thought you would be a little bit more. I am not. <laughs> I am not. I am definitely not. <laughs> okay, since you're transitioning us there. So apparently we're going to talk about uh, your job. What <laughs> <laughs> these hand signals you're doing? What is, what is, these, what is this talking? prayer hands thing you're doing? <laughs> I'm like trying to find I'm words now. a sermon together. <laughs> trying to find words now. Because I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know how to pivot back to a serious topic after that. Like, folks can't see me, but I'm like literally crying right now. I've been laughing so hard for the last 10 minutes. So given that you're not that serious. I am not. Leo. Yep, double, double Leo. Leo. Come on, say it right. You know what? I, we just asked somebody else this for a podcast. So now I'm going to toss it to you, actually. How does being a Leo show up at your work? Everyone is better when I'm around. Everyone, everything, that everywhere. That was the most Leo answer ever. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, you know, I think that the challenge, the challenge with the way people perceive Leos is that they are assuming that there's an arrogance. In order to have arrogance, there also has to be deceit. Hmm. The reality of the dopeness is real. <laughs> it's not, it's not arrogance. It's just a fact. If a fact is a flex, then that's on you. Mm-hmm. Just saying. I think that was great to start. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, really want to have a comment section for his podcast and have people reacting. Can we? Insta- it's just, it's just going to be a series of rolled eyes. Like. <laughs> I want to Instagram this live or something because this is hilarious. Um, all right. So let's kick off by yes. you telling us how you got into this line of work. What do you do and how did you get into it? Sure. Uh, so I got into it because I'm black. Um, and uh, experiences in life uh, required that I have some type of a lens towards my own self-preservation. Um, but uh, essentially, so I, I actually started uh, in uh, financial services. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my degree in economics from DePaul, and I uh, was in commodities trading. And uh, at the same time, I was on the board of directors of this nonprofit uh, out in the North Lawndale neighborhood uh, where I'd grown up. And uh, they asked me to step off the board and to join the staff as uh, de- a development director, uh, head of fundraising. Uh, it was the worst, ap- in retrospect, it was the absolute worst time to take that job. It was in 2008. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Great Recession was just kicking off real mm-hmm. nice. Um, took the job and um, uh, had an absolutely life-changing experience. Um, going back into a neighborhood I grew up in and having to be the sort of the face of how we communicate what is happening uh, in North Lawndale, what is happening particularly um, for our organization is called the Young Men's Educational Network. We were focused on the young boys, and at the time, a lot of the programming and financial, the philanthropy dollars were being shifted away from um, uh, boy-focused programming. And it was primarily because we were having that big shift around data-driven impact measures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so foundations were demanding different types of data. They wanted to see success. They wanted to see all these things. And black boys really weren't producing the levels of, of impact that people wanted to see and could brag about. Uh, so there had been this sort of systemic sort of defunding of programs and shifting away from them as an audience. And this organization was kind of like locked in, like, no, we're not leaving them. Uh, we're going to focus on this. Um, and I think that that's also I'm, I'm adding that because I think that we're going to get to talk about that now. You know, for me, 20 years later, mm-hmm. looking at the question of where are black men in this work, <clears throat> those early experiences are, are still very germane. But anyway, I got that that job got me into the social impact sector. I went from there and realized, like, you know, a lot of the issues that we were facing, um, they, they weren't because of what was happening just in Lawndale. It was happening upstream because of systemic measures, because of the ways that organizations, uh, companies, and, and foundations worked, uh, how people perceived the idea uh, of social impact, as well as the idea of why people live in poverty or why there is violence or why there are gangs and these sorts of things. Um, so I wanted to go upstream a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, got a job as a foundation officer, a program officer. Uh, and then uh, after that, I went over to the University of Chicago and led uh, the social innovation and philanthropy strategy there. Um, and I left there and started Justice Informed in 2017, uh, primarily because, uh, one, the Trump election was just so polarizing in America mm-hmm. at that time. Y'all, if y'all might remember what it was like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in the U.S. Um, you know, when we saw things like the Muslim ban, when we started to hear things uh, spoken about, um, you know, people across Latin America and the way, you know, calling them murderers and rapists and all of these types of things. Um, not only the language being a challenge, but the, lit- the, the legislation uh, that was being passed. Uh, and I was, wa- I, was, I was really, you know, I was, I was comfortable. I was happy, you know, uh, working at UFC and uh, working with young people and students and, and teaching social justice and public policy and all this kind of stuff. Um, but for the time, I was just like, I need to get a little bit more hands-on in this work. Like, we need folks who aren't afraid. Uh, of these issues. We need folks who do believe it is their job uh, to teach white folks about white supremacy. It's not, you know, I hear a lot of people call it, it's not our job to teach white folks. I was like, mm-hmm. if they taught themselves, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> like, somebody's going to have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, and you may, it may not be comfortable for you, but that doesn't mean that that's not our work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to get a little bit more forward into the work. And so I started Justice Inform. Um, and uh, in 2017, and um, you know that's that's those are some of the things that got me into it. Um, those are some of the catalysts. I'm sure we'll we'll unpack a little bit more later on, but that's the the, the brief version. I feel like you had these really lofty goals for for Justice Informed mm-hmm. and the work that you wanted to do. First off, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's just be real. The, the the life of an entrepreneur is learning to be humble. Um, you can have all the goals in the world and then you try to overlay a financial model on it and you got to change, you got to shift your goals a little bit. Mm -hmm. You try to overlay an operational model on top of your goals and you got to change it a little bit. 
you overlay a team model versus a single solo entrepreneur model onto it, you got to change this stuff a little bit. The market changes and the pricing changes and the, the, the ways in which people understand social impact. One year they can say they're saying Black Lives Matter is the most uh, you know, polarizing thing in the world. And then in, in 2014 and then in 2020, people are putting it on billboards and putting the word Hilton Hotels next to it. Um, like things change <laughs> as I, I it's, it's uh, I had I, I did have lofty goals. I still have very lofty goals. Um, but I just say that the entrepreneurial journey has taught me to be very humble about how rigid I, I want to be about what my goals are um, and instead kind of kind of think more about the visions. Like, what is the vision? Where are we trying to go versus what are the goals to get us there? I feel like with in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of push towards DEI initiatives, right? Yes. First, let me kick off by a question, because I told you that this is the thing that you brought to my attention. And I was like, duh, when you said it to me and hmm. it took me a second. The difference between DEI and anti-racism work. <laughs> yeah. Night and day. Night and day. Break that down. Yeah. So so I, I think the challenge and this this will get into the issue of language. Um, people use words and don't really know what they mean and don't also understand necessarily the limitations mm -hmm. of the words that people are using. Um, DEI is primarily a, um, a corporate derive. And when I say corporate, I don't just mean any organization. I mean specifically corporations, for-profit companies, usually those that are organized as a C1, mm -hmm. um, uh, a C-Corp, sorry. Um, uh, not just small businesses, not tiny small businesses with three people or five people or 10 people. I'm talking like corporations. Mm -hmm. um, they created DEI primarily because uh, in the beginning of the legislation that required them to have some type of a lens on the work of diversity and integration. I'm not saying inclusion, I'm saying integration. Mm -hmm. um, 64 Civil Rights Act, 68 Fair Housing Act, uh, 73 Equal Pay Act, 77 Community Reinvestment Act. All of these, these legislative shifts pushed a change and a requirement around compliance for corporations, which then created the need for strategy, which created the need for naming those things. They called them diversity initiatives. Um, and diversity initiatives were all about hiring. They're all about hiring. And the hiring was to ensure that they were in compliance. Mm -hmm. um, the question of whether they wanted to radically transform society, whether they wanted to move away from a hyper-capitalist model of production and finance and these sorts of things over to one that was <clears throat> perhaps more collectivist and, 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 and equitably redistributive. Nah, nah, nah. It was compliance. So um, um, my ex-boyfriend's job, his full-time job, was when there was a huge merge between two different companies that did HR. His they were doing thousands and thousands of layoffs. Oof. His entire job was to run analytics on each round of layoffs to make sure they weren't running or laying off too much of one group. Yep. That was it. That was his entire job so that he wouldn't get sued. Yeah. I mean, in an example like that, I'd say um, that sucks. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, if we want, if we're on the other side demanding accountability to ensure that people of color, women, queer folks, people with disabilities are not disproportionately being laid off. We do have to do the math. Mm -hmm. We need that job. But even that <laughs> lens was with the idea of not getting sued, not necessarily yeah. wanting to do right by people. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. no, that's real. Um, the, the compliance thing is real, and, and I think that that has to start the um, uh, awareness that people have when they think about what is DEI. It didn't start with E or I, it started with D. It's about diversity. 
And to this day, it is still primarily about diversity. Um, when I talk about DEI across the country, more often than not, people start the conversation by saying, yeah, we need to get more women in leadership, more people of color. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm talking about more so is the E part, <laughs> which is still very hotly debated, very contentious, and something that most people I find when I'm engaging with them, even in a client contract, do not have a firm con uh, uh, understanding of it. Um, so, so DEI versus anti-racism, let's just kind of get real, real clear on that. Uh, DEI is uh, uh, an opportunity to create um, sort of the mechanics around how you create a diverse workforce, meaning people who hold various differences of identity are all present, whether that's because of compliance for a federal program or whether that's because you actually care. The reality is, is that the, the D part is about creating diversity um, and of, of all types of people. The I part is really about the felt experience that that diversity can create because one of the things about diversity is when you, when you diversify anything, it creates chaos. Mm -hmm. um, when you put a person who's been in one environment their whole life and then you fill that environment with all these different types of people, that's going to feel like chaos to them. And I don't mm -hmm. think that that's like a moral argument. That's a moral issue. I think that's just natural. Right. Like people don't know what they don't know. And when they get around something different, they might be like, what? What was that? Ew, I don't like that. What is they don't mm -hmm. know. They don't know the language. I can't say that. Why can't I say that? I thought that was what it was called. Mm -hmm. There's all these things that then become microaggressions, triggers, other things to people who are being integrated into those spaces. That's the work of inclusion, of ensuring that, 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 mod, that there is a, a firm model for integration, given that we're still at the point of trying to integrate workplaces. Right. We're doing that at the same time where people still willfully refuse to do that work personally. Mm -hmm. So, And I'll just say that I think that the workplace is the worst place to do this work. <laughs> And I know that's where most of the time I'm doing this work is in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I am also saying on the record, I think that the workplace is one of the worst places to learn how to be the, a better human. Mo because people are coming into that space with, for different reasons. Some people are showing up to work because they're like, look, pay me my money. Right. Pay me my money. I don't want to go to this ERG, BRG meeting. Just pay me. I don't need to like this person. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be here transacting. Most of those people are Capricorns. Um, <laughs> When, when we think about how it works on the other side, mm -hmm. some people like me, we come in for relationship. The Leos are like coming in the brigade. Who wants to be friends? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We're annoying everybody. And then you got the Libras in the corner writing poems. Right? They're just observing I feel like that's everything. that's the Pisces. It's both of them. The Pisces just do it with a little bit more accuracy. <laughs> okay. The Pisces are very poignant. Yeah. The Libras are very, very ephemeral. Mm -hmm. um, anywho. Um, uh, this work, this work is really to, to, to try to integrate these workspaces. But I do think that that's a dangerous thing, given that most people live in segregated communities mm -hmm. themselves, and then they come to work to try to learn how to desegregate. That is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. You need to be practicing this in your everyday life, not when you're on the job expecting to get paid to do it. Um, and that creates some of the tensions that I'm also seeing a lot of. The equity part is what is still debated right now, and it is the closest thing we have to saying that this is about like racial equity or anti-racism and such. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just say that racial equity and anti-racism are also different things. Mm -hmm. um, the E part is really about changing structures, uh, changing the infrastructure of, of different practices that, that organizations take on. Um, and it's about um, pushing in and understanding first that we have to acknowledge that we didn't build these organizations. And most of the business schools that teach how to build a business, how to build an organization, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, when it first started, wasn't talking about how to do operations for equity. Mm -hmm. They were just talking about how to raise money. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there, there are some best practices that are truly whack 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also that, that are firmly rooted in the disenfranchisement of people of color and other persons who hold minoritized identities. Um, the E part is what it was, was included to say, hey, this isn't just about hiring. This also isn't just about an experience. This is about changing structures, changing paradigms, changing systems. That's the E work. And, most, and many organizations don't feel that that's their job. Mm-hmm. Um, the E work in the corporate world, we're fighting it because, you know, when Milton Friedman in the 1970s published that seminal piece on stakeholder capital, on, sorry, shareholder primacy, um, saying that the purpose of an American business is simply to, to uh, uh, pay back and make money for the shareholders, the people who actually have money in, everything else is secondary. Mm-hmm. When that happened and the business community said, yes, we agree, everything about like residential segregation, everything about like, uh, worker experiences, everything about anybody who wasn't an owner went out the door. Equity is to bring these people back to the table mm-hmm. and make them matter. Um, anti-racism <laughs> is very different because it's specifically, it, it requires an assumption that you believe that if we start with race, we can fix the other things. Um, that at the root of the, the challenges of many of the various social and, and, and civic injustices that we face, um, the creation of race, uh, as race is a created concept by, by, by uh, European colonists, um, if we start with fixing and dealing with how race affects the world, we can get to these other things around gender, around ability, around other types of things. But anti-racism specifically also has certain pillars. Uh, the first pillar is an active confrontation of white supremacy, uh, which means the, the normalizing of white concepts, ideas, cultural norms, et cetera, in any space. The fact that you can go, you know, I just, I, I just was in the Middle East. I was in Africa a couple months ago. Um, I'm going to be uh, over in, in Jerusalem later on this year. I promise you there's going to be a large group of people, and most of them are going to speak English. Mm-hmm. I, I traveled the world for a year, had went to more than 30 countries and found English in every single one of them except two. And, and, and that's 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 not because people love to speak English. It's you because can, they know they need to know it. They have to know it to compete on the, it, because of the way in which we look at globalization. And that leads us to our second point, mm-hmm. hypercapitalism. Mm-hmm. We have to have an active confrontation of hypercapitalism because the ways in which white supremacy spreads is often through the capital markets and through the, the, the ownership of the labor class. Um, and so anti-racism, in order to get at, 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 at releasing these pressures of racism and racial, and racial caste-making across the world, whether it shows up as anti-blackness or colorism or otherwise, um, we have to understand that the economic model uh, supports the proliferation of anti-blackness and colorism okay. and these other things. And we have to separate ourselves um, both in the near term while also creating a different economic model in the long term that fully realizes the power, the opportunities, and the, 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 the safety of people of color across the globe. Um, and so you have to have a focus on hypercapitalism, and that's not usually a part of DEI. Right. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, militarism, which is also not a typical part of DEI. Uh, militarism is really important as it relates to anti-racism because wherever you find people of color, you usually find a, dis- a negatively different uh, experience that they have with any type of security forces, whether that's them coming into a store to, to go shop at Zara, whether that's them walking down the street uh, in a neighborhood that they don't live in, uh, or whether that's uh, them driving their car on the highway at 2 o'clock in the morning through something that used to be a sundown town uh, here in the United States. Uh, people of color uh, have a different experience, and often negatively so, uh, with security forces. And so in order to be effective in racial equity, you have to actually be serious about understanding how the securitization of property, that's the hypercapitalism part, for the benefits of those who have historically held power, it's the white supremacy part, 
mm-hmm. um, is often enacted and, and, and engaged through the lens of security forces. Um, security is very different from safety. Security is all about how you protect something. It's about weaponry. It's about a gun. It's about cages, these sorts of things. Um, safety is about how we establish and organize an economic and social model such that, that, that uh, people know that they can trust their neighbor, trust someone else because they have enough. Um, that they're not being pushed into these terrible situations where they may do something that is unethical or breaks a community agreement. Um, there are, of course, situations where people just, they want to do some bad stuff. We have to have solutions for that. Um, people who want to hurt people, that's very different um, from poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so safety is very different from security because safety is about relationships, where security uh, is about uh, a gun, cages, uh, handcuffs, these Enforcement. Sorts of Enforcement, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I need another drink. <laughs> this, is, this is intense. We went from you singing Key Sweat or whatever you. Oh no, you were singing Genuine. My I bad. was singing Genuine. Thank you. You referenced very much. Key Sweat. I did because because he has the the late night. I'm a, you know we're in this podcast studio and I'm feeling very late night radio hosty right now. You know the vo- <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm keeping my voice at a lower register just to keep things interesting. <laughs> And uh, I think my brain is still having a hard time catching up and wanting mm-hmm. to go back to, to this topic of music as opposed to this one. It's, it's, too, er- it's too early in the morning for me. I wake up like this. <laughs> my brain doesn't work before 11 a.m. Oh, mine doesn't either, but you you, you pushing me to do this. So, you know, we're here. <laughs> we're here. We're going to play ball. All right. <laughs> so, um, talking about all of this at a very interesting point, in time yeah we have florida <laughs> do we have or they have i feel like we just need to let them go <laughs> just float just float, float away that, that modest mouse song float on just float on that climate change that they don't believe in believe in might take them out anyway look they beach is 100 degrees right now they can go ahead and get them crab boils going for each other <laughs> texas apparently signed on to some of this stuff too are we surprised no. Are we are we, are we surprised? <laughs> I Texas also be trying to leave the union every year or two. So like they they put the eye in union. <laughs> um so and then there's uh the Supreme Court justices. Yeah, yeah SCOTUS decision. There's an uh, uh election coming up. Yeah. What are I'm trying to figure what what is your biggest fear right now? Oh, I have no fear. What is your biggest concern? Yeah. Um, I just want to be clear on the fear point. Um, fear is a, another proper noun for me. Fear is where you say neither you nor God nor anything can stop the thing that you're facing. Um, I always think that we can do some work. I always think we can get this going. Um, I, there's some things I'm scared about that I'm, I'm concerned about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, but most of my concern, off, it, it, it isn't about um, necessarily what we're facing. It's about what we're not doing to prepare. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of my concerns are about the disorganized state of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, the differences, uh, the deep differences of opinion about what the future of this country is among the people who say that they are politically aware, socially involved, and progressive of mind. Um, we have deep, deep disagreements. Um, I'm concerned about um, the rise of the black and brown hypercapitalist. Um, that um, rather than doing the work of freeing the slaves, they just want to hold the whip and own the plantation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm concerned about how, how successful they are becoming and mm-hmm. how many of them are growing and how, um, for instance, like Gen Z is the largest buyer of luxury goods right now. And they're also the biggest ones talking about protest. Hmm. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a question of accountability. Um, 
these are the things I'm concerned about that that are 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 we do not have sufficient traction and we do not have sufficient unity and cohesion on our side um, to to face what to me is a very clearly organized um, uh, uh, conservative party, a very clearly organized uh, group of people who are against the rights of, of people of color who want to uh, change entire textbooks. And now, now they're talking about slavery was like a workforce development program to build skills for black people. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that that is even a viable argument that is being given the light of day um, and we do not have an effective counter, nor do we have a, an organized body to push against it um, immediately, like right. immediately is of concern to me. Um, I don't care what they're doing. I care what we're doing. And I'm looking at what we're doing and I'm saying, I don't think this is going to stop that. We continue to underestimate. Yeah. And we, I, I think it starts with the fact that we, we, we spend so much, you know, there's this, this passage in, in, in the Bible that says um, the forces of, of uh, the sons of evil are more prudent than the sons of light. Um, and it's pointing to this idea that uh, when people are doing stuff that's just like bad, bogus, etc., they're not sitting there trying to figure out, was it bad enough? Mm -hmm. Was this bad? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's bad. We're sitting around here pointing fingers at each other like, but was you, were you good enough? Yes. Were you good? Mm -hmm. Like this, there's so many purity tests mm -hmm. over here um, that uh, not only do we not have sufficient traction, um, we lose people who are partners because we insist on treating them as if they're enemies. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, that one just took me a whole just there was a recent uh, study in the last couple of years around women of color specifically in leadership. Mm. And one of the things that came out, it was talking about the higher burnout rate for women of color, yep. obviously, specifically uh, more so black women. But one of the things that came out of that uh, that stood out to me is that when women of color get into leadership, they face greater backlash from their staff for not being doing everything right when mm -hmm. it comes to racial and equity. fast enough and fast enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my thought is always, and I, I said it somewhere else, is I think that white, we expect white folks to not show up in a specific way. But then this person, Barack Obama, gets to be president, and everybody's like, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And we start pointing at all of those different things. And that person, when we were talking about leadership, because this is nonprofit leadership, that study came out about, burns out and leaves. Yeah, I think we need to. I think we need to have a serious conversation about the proliferation of leadership programs without a corollary proliferation in followership programs. Mm. I think that there's an assumption that if you're a follower, you are less than a leader. Um, to me, a leader is a person. Leader, you know, my team knows this. I say this mantra a lot. A leader takes the first hit. A boss takes the first mm -hmm. cut. Um, you do not get people who have spent their entire lives fighting for change, specifically, uh, passionately, and consistently working towards a better future for more than just themselves, get them into position and then treat them as if they are their title. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely ridiculous. And that is happening all over the place. You know, this, the community of North Lawndale lost six of the most visionary leaders of nonprofits in the last two years. It is absolutely reprehensible that those people mostly left because of burnout. And it was not because of just systemic injustice. It was not because of just white supremacy. It was because of the reality of how hard it is how incredibly hard it is to be a leader of color of people who are expecting to do work but not carrying the work themselves. It is a challenging thing. We are all, we are all here to carry the water. Mm -hmm. It is not that we have some, it, this is not a world of saviors. This is not a world of, of, of charismatic leaders and visionaries. This is a world where we are still working, con committing to collective uh, struggle towards collective solution, 
not individual struggle towards an individual vision. But this goes to your earlier point, though, around business practices. Like when I was in school, I was still being taught the transformational leadership model mm -hmm. and the charismatic leader. Yeah. I always love to tell the story about how I was given the feedback that I would not make a good ED because I was too introverted and did <laughs> everything through my staff yeah. as opposed to doing it myself and like let them have the speaking engagements, let them do because I'm like, I don't need to be out there. And it's. I think it's really, for those of us, a lot of us who are in leadership positions, I think it's still really hard because it's millennials, a, older, a lot of older millennials and Gen Xers. Um, we were still taught under these old models, and it's right now that these ideas are being challenged in a more open way, and also with the blow up of social media and all those things. But a lot of what I do today goes completely contradictory to what I've learned from my mentors, from the leaders I follow, yeah. from my school. And so I... I have a little bit of grace for folks because I know it's a transition. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I'm just saying that, that we have to look at the effect and say, is this what we intend? Yeah. I don't um, know that uh, I call it the younger millennials and the Gen Zers have the same grace for us. No. I, <laughs> You're I, just I, like, look, no. I, I, no I'm, <laughs> I'm saying this as an elder millennial who's also been called a geriatric millennial. Oh, you're one of those um, too. I'm okay. One, yeah, I'm one of those. Um, <laughs> and um, it's a it's a tough thing. I think you know, oh, man. We this is going to turn into a workforce, uh, a, 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 a workplace leadership podcast. I Which was not the intention. Which was not but... the intention. That's why I got, I got a lot of stuff in my head, and I'm just like, whoo, This is a this is a direction here. Um, I'll, I'll I'll try to be brief on this, um, which is impossible for me. Um, uh, it is, I, I think, I think that, um, okay. My first leadership program that I was ever in, I was 11. My first entrepreneurship program I was ever in, I was 13. I have been <laughs> told and taught what leadership and being the changes since before I entered high school. By the time I got to where I'm at now, I had also understood the humility that was necessary to come up under other great leaders. I, the executive director that hired me as a development director that I talked about earlier, this man was an incredible leader, absolutely incredible leader. Um, and I say that because at his core, he understood and lived the work of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. Leadership is hard. And I think that pe people who have not been taught and people who have not also carried the water. And I don't mean systemic injustice water. Mm -hmm. I'm talking personal responsibility, which so I sound, oh, Lord, I sound like I'm one of those dudes on the podcast. Personal responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it like those dudes. I, uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is that there is a, there is a, if it is to be, it's up to me moment that people mm -hmm. face. Parents face this. Mm -hmm. Like, you can be in a community, but you still have to care for your child. Mm -hmm. Students know this. When you're, you can be in a whole classroom, but you still have to write your paper. Mm -hmm. There is an element of personal responsibility that is important. Personal motivation, locking into your star player, carrying your water for the people, but also carrying the water that is yours to carry. Um, I think that because we're in this space where there are so many compounded issues um, around, um, you know, the fatigue that people have right now, I think that um, the uh, the pressures to perform that people are under, I think that the the realities of poverty that people are trying to escape. Um, by the time they get to work, man, they're tired. Mm -hmm. They're tired. That's to say, work is the worst place to be doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, this is stuff we should be building into our community models, not our workplace models. Um, by the time they come to work, 
usually if they're hopping to a place where they think there's a visionary, dope, empathetic leader like Bessie, they're not necessarily showing up. I, I'm not, I know this might sound harsh. They may not be showing up to work. They're showing up to heal. Mm-hmm. They're showing up to be in a space where they feel safe. And mm-hmm. that's important. The problem is you're doing it where you got a, 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 a group of people that's moving with a mission. Right. <laughs> that's trying to that has to has timelines and timetables and deadlines that aren't just because of white supremacy. It's because they wanted to do this work. Right. They chose to do this work. Mm-hmm. I'm not oppressed into doing justice and form. I mm-hmm. chose to make justice and form. Mm-hmm. I chose to wake up. I chose to do them 15 hour days. That's not some labor issue. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. Other people who come in, this is the challenge. You're coming into small shops like yours or mine. Um, it's not like we got all the resources. Right. I don't get the the contracts like McKenzie gets, even though we're in the same sector as McKenzie. Mm-hmm. The people who work at McKenzie, the black folks who work at McKenzie, make more than me. Mm-hmm. I make less than an entry level McKenzie associate right now, as the CEO of Justice Informed. Mm-hmm. I make less than the entry level. So when people come into my shop, it's it has to be some passion. There mm-hmm. has to be some purpose. There has to be some want to do it. And and that is a challenging thing because we're still also facing the realities of systemic injustice. We're still I tired. And so I, I have to, I'm just, I'll close by just saying, like, I see and feel deeply the, the responsibility that I have and that in, I think any pe- person of color or woman who's leading a small shop has to in some way put up a shield for your team to protect them mm-hmm. from these external forces while simultaneously building a space, a liberatory model of, for your organization that you don't have a blueprint. I didn't go to school and see the blueprint for how I'm building my company right now. I just went to previous organizations that were terrible. Same. <laughs> and I had that experience Same. and I was like, if I ever get this, I ain't doing it that way. Same. And, but that doesn't mean I know everything about how to do it. I right. can only do it when the people show up who want to do it with me. Mm-hmm. But they have to show up not with expectation. They have to show up with initiative and a desire to engage. Mm-hmm. It's my job to also be humble enough to listen to them, Absolutely. to respond to them, and to do it quickly. I had a person on my team. That was her entire thing. And I actually promoted her onto my team so that I could interact with her more frequently because she's the one that helped me break apart everything that I ever thought was true Mm. from removing the skill on evaluations. It was a decision with that team to um, remove compensation away from performance, getting away from capitalism, right? And who can produce the most and just start really challenging all of these business practices. But when I take some of these business practices to typical HR people. Oh yeah, no, this doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's why I don't even, I don't even go to Sherm. Like, <laughs> dude, but like my board also feels more comfortable if I have an HR person. Yeah. But I spend a lot of time fighting HR people because I'm like, that's not the way that we do things. And they're like, well, that's best practices. Yeah, we need some next practice. I was like, best practices have been perpetuating white supremacy and capitalism. Like, we want to move away from that. And so it's just, and then funders also. I always get asked the question, like, around how do I make this happen? Because so many people say that they can't. I'm like, you just have to make the decision that this is your priority. Yeah, and you gotta you gotta make sure your team is on board with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I am I am so blessed that, um, and, and I'll say I feel blessed now. But I was ready to burn the whole ship down uh, eighteen months ago. I was ready to dissolve Justice Informed um, because the weight of the challenges of of what really felt like people who needed to heal, and people who had past experiences or other ideas, um, and and uh, bringing those inside the shop, it was so mentally harmful for me. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like, I was like, yo, I didn't, like, that's not happening here. Mm-hmm. That's in your mind. And that's not, I'm not trying to gaslight. No, it's I'm like legit trauma. Like, that's, that's trauma. I recognize that. Yeah. But that's being brought now 
Mm-hmm. And, and this emotional and psychological challenge is also being brought into the workplace. That's why, again, I say this is the worst place to do this work. This is work we should be doing around a coffee table. Mm-hmm. This is work we should be doing when we're living next to each other. This is work we should be doing in a collectivist society that's organized around a sharing or a gift economy. The way we have this set up is just absolutely, it, it, it's the long road to peace. This is the long road to peace. Um, and and I, I, I now, I mean, man, I love my team. <laughs> like, oh, like the we, we have been iron on iron and now mm-hmm. we are sharpening one another. Um, you know, yesterday being with one of, you know, my head of impact, Anna Radoff, shout out to Anna, um, being able to co-facilitate with her some frameworks that I built years ago that she and our, 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 our senior strategist, Kevin Nigarora, have helped to reshape and breathe new life into. And, all, you know, Kevin, I call him the handoff king because, like, I can start a framework. I can start, a, like, I think, like, maybe we should think about organizational design like this. Maybe we should think about selling like this. And I can just hand it to Kevin, mm-hmm. and Kevin will be like, I see it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And he'll just, you know, just chef it up, like add some icing on it and put some extra pepper on it. Mm-hmm. You know, and Anna is somebody who's just, I, we locked in, and we, when we realized, it's like, Anna, let me take you off these client projects. You love people. And you're incredible as a manager. How about you just manage everybody and I'll just, you just report to me and I'll have one direct report. <laughs> like, that, I just I, did that myself on my E-team. Like, I, not everybody, but uh, somebody just took off half of what's supposed to be my team because yeah. I'm like, I can't do it. But it's freed us up now mm-hmm. for me to get back to my job. Now, I mean, you've probably seen like my social media is like on fire now. Like, <laughs> That's how I can do this podcast. That, and it's because, and that, that's, that's, that's us carrying the water together. Mm-hmm. That's us carrying the water together. Um, that's that's the the beauty of a, a well-oiled team that trusts each other, and that's where you also don't need to have so many statutory requirements that an HR professional would, would require. Let me just say that I do think that most organizations need an HR specialist. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I strongly support that. Um, I, I think that once you get to a certain size, you absolutely must yes. have one. You mm-hmm. absolutely must have one, not just for legal compliance, not just for the organizational's going concern, but also because there needs to be more than just the executive director, CEO, or the VP, or the second in command who's the person. Right. Uh, there needs to be someone who's not sitting there with just executive leadership and that responsibility. And as more and more uh, people of color step into leadership, I also don't think it should be their burden to be sussing out these emotional and psychological workplace issues. You need somebody else that's doing that who's not also carrying the big bucket of leadership. Yeah. My one wish, if I, if I had all the money, would be to get every single person a therapist. If you had all the money, that would be very hyper-capitalist of you. Yes, but I would <laughs> give it right back to people. <laughs> no, that's a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole... The, the, the question of safety and, and therapy and that stuff is... is <sighs> I wish there were more black male therapists. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other, yes. there, we can go Especially, down that. Look, the editing on this is going to have to be wild. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> we, this is a, this is a multidimensional conversation. <laughs> it, she's used to it. Cause I told you uh, a couple of guests, we've been all over the place, yeah. but I want to go back to, um, this hyper-capitalism concept beca- yeah. and to kind of intertwine it with the leadership. Cause you and I were talking about something really interesting and that's, this idea that you brought forth around class solidarity yeah. of leadership. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, so it's one thing if you're just like, there's a, I think my greatest enemy in the world inside the people of color community is the secure the bag group. Um, I am, I am 100% diametrically opposed mm-hmm. to that type of thinking. Um, when you start to, it, it's one thing to say financial sustainability financial security it's another thing to say let's just go collect and accumulate as much as we can Mm -hmm. that's how america was created 
Like that that's how you get colonization. I don't care what color you are. Um, I don't care whether you grew up next to me. Um, I am I am very less loyal to a person. I'm more loyal to an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't share that idea, that's cool. We just aren't partners. Um, class solidarity has been incredibly lacking in our DEI conversations. As people have been talking more and more about like pay equity, right. pay equity does not have much at all to do with class solidarity. It has to do with a market evaluation of a compensation chart or a compensation level that is based off of usually companies and organizations that never committed right. to a collectivist economic model, mm-hmm. that never committed to transforming the world, mm-hmm. that never said they wanted to be the change. They wanted the moral arc of justice to still be long, like Dr. King said. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it to bend towards justice. They wanted that thing to take as long as it could so that they can get as much as they can. That's really hard for my staff to receive because I, I always frame it as if you replicate the market, then you're replicating capitalism. Yeah. That's so hard for folks to receive, especially if they're on the higher end it's of earning potential. It's water that they would need to carry. So mm-hmm. I've never successfully recruited a partner at Justice Informed. Never. Part of it is because of the way we're capitalized. So we are capitalized as an S-Corp, and so there are no shares to be given out. There's no equity uh, to be sold off. We don't, we're, we're not even our, – our company isn't organized from a tax basis to do that. That's also not the way in which I envision Justice Informed. I envision, I, I envision moving Justice Informed to an employee-owned model. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a little bit different from just a shareholder-owned model. Mm-hmm. But we're not even at a point where we can like effectively organize in that way. When I say that we haven't, effect- we haven't recruited a partner, what I'm saying is because what I can offer is cash. What I can offer is cash. And when we're a startup, we're, it's not just cash. It's cash with a little bit of equity. That also means we're betting on our ability to work our butts off mm-hmm. to make this pay off. You know, for the last several years, when I'm out, I've been out on the market exclusively, exclusively looking, and I, now I'm not looking anymore. That's <laughs> so anybody who's listening. Um, look, look, looking for people of color to, who were brilliant, ready, and wanted to do this work to join me in the partner level at Justice Informed. One of the offers I had was $150,000 cash with 25K deferred comp after 18 months if we hit certain goals, as well as equity in the company. Nobody. I mean, nobody. Nobody. I'm like, that sounds real nice to me. That's more than I got. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, it, it, it was more than I was making. Mm-hmm. It was over 50% more than I was making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm saying, look, I'm betting. I know that, that you probably don't have your enough point figured out. I have my enough point figured out. Mm-hmm. I know what my enough point is financially. Mm-hmm. And once I hit that, everything above that I share with the team. When I'm out there doing keynotes and all of this, we probably bring in upwards of $100,000 a year just in my keynotes alone. Mm-hmm. That money gets spread out to the team. They're not doing those keynotes. The business development that happens at Justice Informed, probably 90% of the business development and the contracts we get are because of work I've done in the world, reputations that I hold, and places that I go, nights I don't sleep, social media channels that aren't my personal channels, they're corporate channels, and so Mm -hmm. I don't get to be the person individual on social media. I'm a business on social media. Like All of those things that I carry specifically, I turn back and share with my team, and that's because I operate under a fairly uh, socialist model of each produces according to their capacity and receives according to their need. I am acutely aware of my capacity. I'm dope as hell. I'm a double Leo in this world. I'm ready to fly while y'all out here walking, barely crawling. I'm homo sapien. You a, you a slug. That's cool. I ain't judging. You help the flowers. I'll help the people. Right? Like, I think I'm dope. I think I have a lot of capacity. And that does not mean that my capacity should solely benefit me, but it does mean it should include me. Yes. And that's where I'm saying, like, hey, there is a certain, there's a minimum that I need in this world 
where I feel safe, where I can provide for my family as my mother is getting older and I'm moving more into a caretaker role. As my cousins often need extra money for anything, you know, mm-hmm. you know, bailing out one of my cousins a couple of weeks ago from jail, like somebody needs that $500. Like you got to right. be able to have that in the account, right? When you got your family out south, these sorts of things like that's real. But what's, I just want to be clear. Most of what these people are fighting for when we're talking about wage and pay equity is not that. Right. They're saying white people make this. How come I can't make that? And I'm saying those people never said they wanted to be what we must become. And if you compare this to that, you should go over there. That is not in solidarity with, with class. The middle class in America, I think it was 2018, it was the last year where the middle class in America was smaller than the upper class and the lower class combined. We are gutting our middle class. And if you understand anything about economic modeling, when you no longer have a functioning, robust middle class, you are headed to doom economically as a society and socially as a community. We must have a strong middle class. Justice Informed is in one of the most lucrative sectors in the country. We are in management consulting. The average profit margins for my sector are 30 to 35%. A restaurant could never, mm-hmm. could never. A hotel could never imagine margins like we have in my sector. Now, why are Justice Informed's margins 15%? Mm-hmm. Because we do equitable profit sharing. I get the same profit share as the analyst. Even though I know for the business, for the money, I'm producing way more. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. I receive according to my need. My salary is my need point. Everything above that, we share with the team. And the way in which I'm leading is to get people to be able to replace me. Every single person that starts, I tell them, your job is to work in such a way that one day you can replace me. I'm not here to be in this role forever. I wasn't here because I wanted a title. I was here because I knew I had to lead in order to reach a vision I have for this world mm-hmm. that we should have for this world. And I think that many of the people who are here trying to secure the bag are fundamentally hypercapitalists, not meaning that they're just trying to get a wage or they're trying to get financial stability. They are trying to accumulate to the point where they can be the philanthropist and they don't care about whether they're a pirate on the way. Mm-hmm. And that is diametrically opposed to the work of equity. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your gender is. That is a problem. That is what we're trying to replace. That is the thinking that got us to this point of needing DEI and needing anti-racism. That's what I mean when I say it's a person who wants not just to free this. They don't want to free the slaves. They want to be free. They want the freedom to do what oppressed them. And they have not translated or transformed their thinking to espouse the work of liberatory economics, liberatory social design, liberatory organizational design. They have not transformed anything. They have simply said, I want what I never got, and until I get it, I'm going to use the language of social oppression, even if it means I am becoming the oppressor. So we're coming up on time. Yep. What would be your call to action for folks? (sighs) Consider that phrase that I said and what it means to you. Each produces according to their capacity and receives according to their need. What do you really need? Not saying what do you want. What do you need? What do you need? I make less than most of my nonprofit executive director friends. Mm -hmm. Our revenues are higher than most of their organizations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's because I know my need point. Now my needs may change if I build a family. That's fine. And you know what's dope? I have a team right now that would welcome that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, My team helps me determine my compensation. So the board doesn't uh, takes the recommendation from the team. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. my team last summer, we had we had we pulled the entire team together and we put everybody's salary. I said, is this what I asked them all? What do you need to make for your need point? And mm-hmm. it's a hard conversation to have transparently with your team when they tell you the need point. And then it's my job to say, OK, 
how do we get you there mm-hmm. if you're not there? And they looked at my salary and all of them said, your salary is too low. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the end of the year and things got tight and I cut my salary 30% so we could save some of our team members. And now we're back up to a point of break even, which is great. And we didn't have to fire anybody. Mm-hmm. But that did mean a 30% reduction in my monthly pay, mm-hmm. right? Um, but last year, on my salary, we were doing so well, I went above my need point. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay going back to my need point. Right. People don't have a need point. They just have a what they got over their point. Right. I want whatever they got. And that's not going to free us. All right, Xavier, where can people find you online? You can find me uh, at Xavier.Ramey, X-A-V-I-E-R dot R-A-M-E-Y on Instagram uh, or on Facebook. I'm mostly on Instagram and especially on LinkedIn. Just search me, Xavier Ramey. And you can also look us up at Justice Informed uh, on LinkedIn and on Instagram, mostly on LinkedIn. And JusticeInformed.com or XavierRamey.com if you have any questions, requests for services, or want me to come and run my mouth where you're at. Apparently he sings too. I do. I do. Would you like an exit song? Do we need an exit song? Let's do it. No, no, I need, I need a request. This, this is, what, oh. what, what, what is a request from the audience? Um, I'm going to request Keith Sweat because that's what I thought you were singing earlier. Oh, that's. I, I feel like you can. There is to... nothing clean that Keith Sweat. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I can't. I can't. It's My not like body you... all over your body. It's not like you know all the words anyway. <laughs> If you're enjoying this episode, we have a few upcoming events that will be perfect for you. Join Alternatives and Broken Office Chair on October 5th at Chicago United for Equity for our second Cocktails and Complicity event. Guest speakers Ayoka Samuels and Leslie Honoré from Broken Office Chair Season 1 will join Bessie in discussing the complex dynamics that perpetuate inequality in the nonprofit sector such as being a woman of color in nonprofit leadership, the nonprofit industrial complex, the intersection of capitalism and philanthropy, and much more. Come enjoy a cocktail, network with nonprofit friends, and engage in these much needed conversations. The link to RSVP will be in the show's notes. Have you been personally impacted by a toxic nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit horror story that you're dying to share? We're right here with you. Join Alternatives for an in person open mic night where nonprofit friends can gather and share horror stories about navigating the nonprofit industrial complex. Come prepared with your favorite story, poem, or song about the terrors of funder site visits, annual appeals, audits, and more. We invite you to share a drink with colleagues and revel in the joys of nonprofit life. The link to RSVP will be in the show notes. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, you can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Best and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening. <laughs>